Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. My name is Michael Ian Black, and it's a little chilly in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library today. And so I have wrapped around my broad and ample shoulders a hand crocheted red, white, and blue blanket that I've had since childhood. And it is, it is a bit of a comfort to me. It is my comfort blankie. But more than that, it keeps me warm. And the reason I keep it in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library is because uh, it is so ugly, my wife will not allow me to keep it in our home proper. When last we met with Jude, he had learned some Latin and he had learned some Greek and he was planning his escape from his his terrible home in Mary Green, where his dastardly aunt ignored him and uh, he had a, a bread root and the town cop was being a pretty good guy and let him uh, drive his Tesla without his hands on his wheel. And he is heading off, he hopes, to Christminster, where he's planning on getting an edumacation. Uh, but to finance this trip, he has learned some stonemasonry. And so he's now 19 years old. It's chapter six of Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure. And I just have to say before I begin, like when I started this book, Jude the Obscure, I thought, ah, this is just this is going to be a slog and terrible and boring, neglecting the fact that this book is considered a classic. So there must be something redeeming about it. And what I what I've discovered so far that is redeeming about it is that Jude is just uh, you just you're just rooting for him because his life is such shit.
So chapter six. At this memorable date of his life, he was one Saturday returning from Alfredston to Marygreen about three o'clock in the afternoon. It was fine, warm, and soft summer weather, and he walked with his tools at his back, his little chisels clinking faintly against the larger ones in his basket. It being the end of the week, he had left work early, and he had come out of the town by a roundabout route, which he did not usually frequent, having promised to call at a flour mill near Crescombe to execute a commission for his aunt. And his aunt is the is the baker, and so it would make sense that he would go to a flour mill at Crestcombe. See, here's what I don't understand. So Christminster is visible from Marygreen. He can go to a barn and look at Christminster, which is the object of all his hopes and desires. His He wants to be a, Christ, a Christian divine, meaning he wants to be some sort of a preacher man, but he's never been. He's never been to Christminster. He's asked all about it. He talks to everybody who's ever been there about it, but he himself has never been yet. He has no problem going to Alfredston. He has no problem going to Crestcombe to execute a commission for his aunt. So uh, uh, Christminster is like this uh, city on a hill that he can't quite ever approach. At least he hasn't approached it to this point. It remains a kind of mirage in the desert of his barren shithole life. He was in an enthusiastic mood. He seemed to see his way to living comfortably in Christminster in the course of a year or two, and knocking at the doors of one of those strongholds of learning of which he had dreamed so much. He might, of course, have gone there now in some capacity or other, but he preferred to enter the city with a little more assurance as to means than he could be said to feel at present. So this is exactly what I'm talking about. He could just go there right now. Now, look, I've talked in earlier podcasts about how I dreamed of moving to New York and how my kind of every uh, action in my, my little town in Hillsborough was designed to further me towards that goal. But I had been to New York as opposed to Jude, who's just kind of looking at the city and dreaming of it and never making any effort to actually visit to see if it is, in fact, what he thinks it is. I suspect he's bound to be disappointed. Back to the book. A warm self-content suffused him when he considered what he had already done. Now and then, as he went along, he turned to face the peeps of country on either side of him. But he hardly saw them. The act was an automatic repetition of what he had been accustomed to do when less occupied, and the one matter which really engaged him was the mental estimate of his progress thus far. And uh, so <laughs> he goes on turning in his head the things that he's learned uh, a little Latin. Uh, a little Greek, some Ajax, which is, uh, that's like a story, I guess. <laughs> and, you know, the, it's like a war story. Heshed, math, history. And, and then he goes on. These things are only a beginning, but I shall not make much further advance here from the difficulty of getting books. Hence, I must next concentrate all my energies on settling in Christminster. Once there, I shall have... Uh, once there, I shall so advance with the assistance I shall there get that my present knowledge will appear to me but as childish ignorance. 
I must save money, and I will, and one of those colleges shall open its doors to me, shall welcome whom now it would spurn if I wait twenty years for the welcome. I'll be D.D. before I have done. And those are the initials D.D., and I don't I don't know what that means. Uh, maybe like a doctoral of divinity. I think I just figured that out. Holy shit. And then he continued to dream and thought he might become even a bishop by leading a... So I know I'm right. DD has to stand for doctorate of divinity because now he's going on to think about being a bishop. Keep in mind, I have never read this book. And you're like, what are you being so self-congratulatory about, Michael? Why are you so proud of yourself for figuring out this simple thing? Because I have so little else in my life to congratulate myself about. Sitting here on the couch with this ratty blanket wrapped around my shoulders in the cold. Shivering to death in the library so I can make a fucking podcast. Can't keep a, can't keep a show on the air. Can't keep a goddamn show on the air. So if I take a moment to pat myself on the back, because I figured out what DD is, why do you have to sit there in judgment? And why not just say, good job, Michael. We know you needed this. You know what? I did need this. I needed it very badly. I don't know why you would judge me in that manner when all I'm trying to do is read Jude the Obscure for your entertainment. You haven't read Jude the Obscure. I guarantee it most of you have not read Jude the Obscure. And if you have, you don't remember it. I'm giving you a glimpse into Thomas Hardy that, that, that none of you except for possibly some of you or maybe the majority of you who know more than I do could possibly have expected when I opened this book and then you mock me for it. I'm really devastated. I'll go back to the paragraph that I just started. And then he continued to dream and thought he might become even a bishop by leading a pure, energetic, wise Christian life. And what an example he would set. If his income were 5,000 pounds a year, he would give away 4,500 pounds in one form and another and live sumptuously for him on the remainder. Well, on second thoughts, a bishop was absurd. He would draw the line at an archdeacon. Perhaps a man could be as good and as learned and as useful in the capacity of archdeacon as in that of bishop. Yet he thought of the bishop again. Meanwhile, I will read, as soon as I am settled in Christminster, the books I have not been able to get a hold of here, Livy, Tacitus, Herodotus, Escheles, Sophocles, Aristophanes. Ha, ha, ha. Hoity-toity. Wait. (laughs) Okay, so somebody else is saying, ha, 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 hoity-toity, but I got to go back and and read you exactly what just happened. So somebody goes, ha, 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 hoity-toity. The sounds were expressed in light voices on the other side of the hedge, but he did not notice them. His thoughts went on. So this is an interesting uh, literary moment, actually, in the book, because I think this is the first time where we're following Jude, right? And we're following his point of view, and we're seeing all the things that Jude sees. But then there's a kind of off-screen moment where we, the the, the readers, uh, hear something and notice something that Jude himself does not. So to me, that feels like a little bump. 
I'm feeling a little bit like, hey, Thomas Hardy, you're breaking the rules here a little bit because if uh, if we notice it, Jude should notice it. But on the other hand, I really like the idea. I would not have liked to have missed. Ha ha ha. Hoity toity. So I guess I'm thankful that he didn't notice because I do like that phrase so much. Okay, so back to the book. His thoughts went on, and he's listing uh, all the people he's going to read here again. Euripides, Plato, Aristotle, Lucretius, Epistetus, Seneca, Antonius. Then I must master other things. The fathers thoroughly, Bedi, B-E-D-E, Bede, Bedi, and ecclesiastical history generally, a smattering of Hebrew. I only know the letters as yet. Hoity toity. But I can work hard. I <laughs> so somebody some somebody's just going hoity toity. And Jude uh, is so wrapped up in his in his uh, his own self congratulation because although I figured out what DD stands for, Jude is now going over all of his accomplishments uh, and. To be honest, they're far more impressive than mine will ever be. He can now read Latin with uh, a fair amount of fluency. He knows Greek pretty well. He's read many of the classics. He's got a list of the classics he wants to read next. Me, the next thing I want to read is the next Vince Flynn book. Never mind that Vince Flynn is dead. There's still authors writing under his name. If you don't know Vince Flynn, he uh, was a writer who died recently. A young man died of, uh, I think, a prostate cancer or something. But he he writes uh, spy thrillers featuring his main hero is a guy named Mitch Rapp. And I like Mitch Rapp because not only is he a world-class assassin, he's also a world-class triathlete. Hoity-toity. And then, it go, and, then, and then it goes, but I can work hard. I have staying power in abundance, thank God. And it is that which tells, yes, Christ Minster shall be my alma mater and I'll be her beloved son in whom she shall be well pleased. In his deep concentration on these transactions of the future, Jude's walk had slackened, and he was now standing quite still, looking at the ground as though the future were thrown thereon by a magic lantern. On a sudden, something smacked him sharply in the ear, and he became aware that a soft, cold substance had been flung at him and had fallen at his feet. A glance told him what it was a piece of flesh, the characteristic part of a barrow pig, which the countrymen used for greasing their boots, as it was useless for any other purpose. Pigs were rather plentiful hereabout, being bred and fattened in large numbers in central parts of North Wessex. On the other side of the hedge was a stream whence, as he now for the first time realized, had come the slight sounds of voices and laughter that had mingled with his dreams. He mounted the bank and looked over the fence. On the further side of the stream stood a small homestead, having a garden and pigsties attached. In front of it, beside the brook, three young women were kneeling, with buckets and platters beside them containing heaps of pigs' chitterlings, which they were washing in the running water. One or two pairs of eyes slyly glanced up, and perceiving that his attention had at last been attracted, and that he was watching them, 
they braced themselves for inspection by putting their mouths demurely into shape and recommencing their rinsing operations with assiduity. Thank you, said Jude severely. I didn't throw it, I tell you, asserted one girl to her neighbor, as if unconscious of the young man's presence. Nor I, the second answered. Oh, Annie, how can you, said the third. If I had thrown anything at all, it shouldn't have been that. Pooh, I don't care for him. And they laughed and continued their work without looking up, still ostentatiously accusing each other. Jude grew sarcastic as he wiped his face and caught their remarks. You didn't do it. Oh, no, he said to the upstream one of the three. Well, hoity-toity indeed. These girls are being very hoity-toity. Clearly, one of them threw the pig part at poor Jude, who's doing nothing but minding his manners and reciting lists of classic authors he would like to read when he gets to Christminster. And to be smacked about the face with pig guts the characteristic part of a barrow pig, fit for only greasing boots in such a manner, I'm sorry, is disgraceful. And these young ladies washing chitterlings by the brook should be ashamed of themselves. She, whom he addressed, was a fine, dark-eyed girl, not exactly handsome, but capable of passing as such at a little distance, despite some coarseness of skin and fiber. She had a round and prominent bosom, full lips, perfect teeth, and the rich complexion of a cochin hen's egg. She was a complete and substantial female animal. <laughs> uh, I don't feel like you could get away with that if you wrote a book today. She was a complete and substantial female animal. No more, no less. And Jude was almost certain that to her was attributable the enterprise of attracting his attention from dreams of the humaner letters to what was simmering in the minds around him. We'll be back. This is Obscure. Beautiful stories from anonymous people. That's the podcast where comedian Chris Gethard talks to one anonymous caller for an entire hour. And there's only one rule on the thing. Gethard cannot hang up until the hour is over. You guys know Chris Gethard. I mean, he's a comedian and he looks very mild mannered and he is very mild mannered, but he is also very funny and very uh, attuned, I would say, to the world. And the show gives callers from all over the world a platform to really open up. They talk about, oh, their dreams, their struggles, their families, all kinds of real stuff uh, that can be hilarious, sure, but also heartwarming. Uh, It can do both of those things at the same time. In two recent episodes, Chris Gethard chatted uh, with someone in a unique moment just before their life was about to change. This week, a woman who's about to live out her own Orange is the New Black-esque journey talks about how getting caught helped her get sober. And last week, Gethard had a touching call with a young man grappling with his sexuality who then came out of the closet on the show. Uh, if you haven't listened yet, now's a great time to subscribe to Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. Find it on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You're listening to Obscure. I'm Michael Ian Black, and this is the podcast where I read Jude the Obscure 
out loud and comment on it as I go. Okay, so Jude has just gotten uh, walloped in the face with pig gristle and he sees these girls and the girls are saying hoity-toity, hoity-toity and they're throwing pig gristle at folks, uh, really just Jude. And so Jude says, you know, basically, did you do that? And they say no. And then he goes, oh, you didn't do it. Oh, no, he said to the upstream of one of the three. Then she says that you'll never be told. She said, deedily, whoever did it was wasteful of other people's property. Oh, that's nothing. But you want to speak to me, I suppose? Oh, yes, if you like to. Shall I clamber across or will you come to the plank above here? Perhaps she foresaw an opportunity, for somehow or other, the eyes of the brown girl rested in his own when he had said the words, and there was a momentary flash of intelligence, a dumb announcement of affinity in posse. So she's got like a posse. She's got these two chicks. That's not what it means. Of affinity in posse, posse, between herself and him, which, so far as Jude Fowley was concerned, had no sort of premeditation in it. She saw that he had singled her out from the three, as a woman is singled out in such cases, for no reasoned purpose of further acquaintance, but in commonplace obedience to conjunctive orders from headquarters. And I think we know <laughs> what, what head headquarters is. I mean, there's when it comes to the male animal, and as Thomas Hardy has uh, so aptly described her, the complete and substantial female animal, in such cases, we know the orders from headquarters, and we know from whence they emanate and why they emanate. And Jude is 19 years old, and to our knowledge, has never even spoken with a girl other than his own aunt. So uh, let's take a pause for a second here to consider this little game Arabella is playing with Jude, or maybe perhaps Jude is playing with Arabella. It has all the classic makings of your classic meat cute pig guts and all. Uh, And you heard me briefly speak with David Cross, uh, the comedian, on an earlier episode. Uh, you know, from Arrested Development and Mr. Show and blah, blah, blah. But you you may not know that he is married to the accomplished actress and writer Amber Tamblyn and that it's adorable. And so I had him, you know, I was interviewing him. So I was like, well, why not ask him how they met? Oh, dude, it's a long, it's a long story. Uh, I'll tr- I'll make it quick. We had met each other prior on a handful of occasions um, at like Golden Globes thing and a you know some upfronts type of thing. Yeah, I, I don't get invited to those. Um, you don't want need to be or want to be. Uh, <laughs> this is a while ago, and then uh, you know, hi, how you doing? Bye. Um, and then uh, years later, I was in the East Village, and I had just gotten my dog puppy and I was taking my dog for a walk and I saw they were shooting a movie across from this across the street from where I lived at the um two boots uh uh on third and a and I saw that was Amber who I'd met a couple times very briefly you know um and I kind of rapped on the window she was they were doing a scene and I went hi whatever and she made a, a heart symbol at me and like well and I just put 
you know, held up my puppy. Uh, I was like 10 weeks old at that point. Like, got to walk dog. Right. That's a much better strategy. A puppy is so much better than pig entrails. Dude, it was not a strategy. I was not ever trying to pick (laughs) up my wife. Uh, Well, why not? Uh, well, you'll see. So, um, I remember, uh, I left my number for the producer, uh, one of the, or not producer, one of the PAs who were there on set. And I said, hey, just give this to Amber. And I just said, Hey, I'm, I live here. I don't know how long you're shooting for. I live here. If you, you know, if you need any tips on where to go, whatever, give me a call. Left my number. That was it. Never heard from her. Turns out she had, uh, that was her last scene. She was leaving the next day. Whatever. Didn't think twice about it. Cut to maybe a year and a half later. And um, I'm on a plane, tiny, tiny little 12-seater, 14-seater going from Houston to Shreveport. I was working on a movie. Um, it was a long, long shoot. I had gone home for two weeks. I had, we had a break. I was on my way back. Um, she was on the plane heading to start a movie. Uh, I didn't know that it was her. I didn't recognize her. She's sitting across from me. There was a, a military woman uh, in between us, and she's just staring at me. Like, like I'll do it now. Uh, obviously, this won't come out on the podcast, but it was just this. Right. And, and now you're, stare, you're, stare, staring, you're at me. staring at me like somebody who like you have a has, problem. A, has a big problem. Yeah. <laughs> and and I notice it. And I look away and I kind of, you know, give it a minute. I look back and she's just staring at me mm-hmm. like, what the fuck is with this chick? This goes on for like a couple minutes and then she's just staring at me. <laughs> And it finally clicked. I was like, oh, my God, Amber. Uh, Amber Tamlin, hi. Oh, yeah, David, hi. Sorry, yeah. Oh, And then we start talking, and we uh, hit it off immediately to the point where the military woman said, do y'all want me to switch seats? And right. she ended up sitting next to me for the rest of the flight, which was short. We made fun of the Sky Mall mm-hmm. the entire flight. And I had no idea how funny she was. Portia de Rossi had tried to get us together. I'd gone through this tough breakup. And I was back on set, and she's like, you know, a friend of mine, uh, she's great. She's so up your alley, perfect. And, you know, uh, who, what? Amber Tamlin, no. What is she, a kid? No, thank you. What? And, you know, I just knew her as, like, the chick from Joan of Arcadia. Like, what? No. (laughs) And uh, I had no idea how funny and smart she was. Long story short, we started hanging out while we were there, because I said Shreveport's it's an awful, awful, depressing place. In her set wasn't as fun as mine. Like, my set was fucking fun it was such a fun movie to work on everybody had a great time and she's there's clear sexual tension and i was so uh uh uh, disturbed by it because i was thinking am i picking up these signals because if i'm wrong because i knew she liked me i knew she was a fan and I'm there's a significant age difference, and I if like if I go to make some move and I'm wrong, I mean I'm the creepiest motherfucker <laughs> on the planet. This is and I couldn't I didn't do anything right for the longest time. And and you know if you ask her about it, she was really getting frustrated. She was like, "When is he going to kiss me?" And like, and I the whole time I'm like, I, I mean I think this is what's happening, but boy if I'm wrong, I'm I'm just a terrible human being. Anyway. So we were at this bar, and I ended up uh, kissing her, and then we've been together ever since. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you, David Cross. Thank you. Comedian David Cross with his own tale of romance. And so let us return to Jude's. We are in Chapter 6. 
but in commonplace obedience to conjunctive orders from headquarters, unconsciously received by unfortunate men when the last intention of their lives is to be occupied with the feminine. How many times have we heard this story before? The conniving lady sitting by the bank of the river, polishing pig chitterlings, and she happens to espy some uh, handsome fellow muttering in Latin on his way to his future and thinks to herself, ah, I'm going to entrap this fellow. It is the story of Kanye West singing uh, She Ain't No Gold Digger or whatever that is. Now I ain't saying she a gold digger, but she ain't messing with no broke niggas. Uh, now I ain't saying she a gold digger, uh, but she ain't messing with no broke niggas. We're going to take another break back in a moment here on Obscure. You down, girl, go ahead, get down. You down, girl, go ahead. Let me hear that back. You guys know how much I love science. I mean, that's my thing. You know, that's my thing. I mean, I don't know if that's my thing. I'm just saying it. But a quality night's sleep helps you recover from distractions faster, prevents burnout, make better decisions, improves your memory overall helps you make fewer mistakes. And that's not marketing, guys. That is science. Our sponsor, Lisa, has leveraged 30 years of experience, hundreds of hours of testing, dare I say scientific testing, to develop the perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles. Their mission to provide a better night's sleep for everybody. And through their 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell. That is more than 26,000 mattresses. Lisa strives to leave the world better than they found it. That doesn't stop with mattress donations together with the Arbor Day Foundation. And again, guys, trees, I mean, trees are science, right? Trees are science. Lisa plants one tree for every mattress they sell, and they are committing to planting 1 million trees by 2025. Lisa makes a fine mattress. I know because I have laid upon them. And I like how they, how they hug my body. Don't miss these summer savings. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash obscure. That's lisa.com slash obscure for $160 off. Lisa, L-E-E-S-A, a better place to sleep. Hello, you're still with us. This is Obscure. I'm Michael Ian Black. We're in Chapter 6 of Jude the Obscure. Arabella has just shown Jude a little leg, you know, a little pig innard. And I cannot wait to find out how that works for these crazy kids. (gasps) Springing to her feet, she said, bring back what is lying there. Jude was now aware that no message on any matter connected with her father's business had prompted her signal to him. He set down his basket of tools, picked up the scrap of offal, beat a pathway for himself with his stick, and got over the hedge. So she throws a piece of pig guts at him. He's like, why did you do that? She's like, I didn't do that. He's like, come on, don't don't be like that. You threw pig parts at me. And she's like, well, maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. And he's like, you want to talk to me? And she's like, yeah, maybe, maybe. 
But first you have to go pick up that piece of pig shit that I threw at you. And just without even thinking, he's like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. That's, isn't that the way of the man? Isn't that just our way? What he should have said is, take your pig awful and hang it. But he picked it up. They walked in parallel lines, one on each bank of the stream towards the small plank bridge. As the girl drew near to it, she gave, without Jude perceiving it, an adroit little suck to the interior of each of her cheeks in succession, by which curious and original maneuver she brought as by magic upon its smooth and rotund surface a perfect dimple, which she was able to retain there as long as she continued to smile. This production of dimples at will was a not unknown operation which many attempted, but only a few succeeded in accomplishing. So now we understand that this is not only a fine and substantial female animal, she also has a certain amount of talent, and her talent lies in the creation of dimples. And by the just by sucking on the interior of her cheek, she is able to create a perfect little dimple when she smiles, but she must maintain that smile in order for the dimples to remain. And so you see, she is bringing to bear all of her feminine charms to poor Jude Frowley, who to this point had his head occupied in the heavens and now has been brought back down to his baser instincts because of this dimple-making vixen. And we don't know what plans she has in store for Jude, but undoubtedly they are going to curtail his higher education. Friends, I tell you now, if you see dimples on a lady, turn and run the other way because those dimples are the dimples of Satan himself. Bedimpled Satan, bedimpled Beelzebub, trying to steer you away from the path of the righteous. to the book. They met in the middle of the plank, and Jude, tossing back her missile, seemed to expect her to explain why she had audaciously stopped him by this novel artillery instead of by hailing him. But she, slyly looking in another direction, swayed herself backwards and forwards on her hand as it clutched the rail of the bridge, till moved by amatory curiosity she turned her eyes critically upon him. You don't think I would shy things at you? Oh, no. So Jude's being a little sarcastic there. We are doing this for my father, who naturally doesn't want anything thrown away. He makes that into dubbin. She nodded towards the fragment on the grass. What made either of the others throw it, I wonder, Jude asked, politely accepting her assertion though he had very large doubts to its truth, as do I, Jude, as do I. I strongly suspect this maiden be telling a falsehood with her dimples and all. Impudence, don't tell folk it was I, mind. 
how can I? I don't know your name. Oh, shit. He's basically like, I can't call you. I don't got your digits. Ah, no. Shall I tell it to you? Do. Arabella Dawn. I'm living here. I must have known it if I had often come this way, but I mostly go straight along the high road. And now she's really going to, now this next line, she's really going to seduce him. Listen to this. My father is a pig breeder, and these girls are helping me wash the innards for black puddings and such like. Well, friends, I think I should stop there because things are getting a little hot and heavy between Jude and Arabella. Things are progressing at a rate that I did not know Thomas Hardy was quite capable of uh, of <laughs> of uh, doing. Things are getting a very <laughs> hot and heavy <laughs> as they race along their amorous path. And so let us leave today in the throes of eroticism. Let us leave there contemplating young Jude and young Arabella discussing pig innards along the banks of the river. I will let you take that image with you as you drift off to sleep and hopefully you will have amorous dreams of your own. And if you do, Think of me, and think of Jude, and think of Arabella, and maybe think of Bradley Cooper, or that chick who's playing the new Lara Croft. Think of all of us. And until next time, friends, sweet dreams, and adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. To subscribe and get more information, visit our show page at Earwolf.com. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can talk to us at Obscure with Michael Ian Black at gmail.com. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Nesea. Spanish Aki Presents. Presents.